How many of us have this, um, this outline? Okay. Well, it's because you guys are not waving the outline, so I'm not sure. Okay, well, people have the outline. All right, so just for recap, um, we'll try and answer some of the questions in the, in the study question. So question one, what agreements did God make with Adam and his posterity? Lent this, um, that'll be three, three weeks ago. Anybody can answer? What agreement? Actually, we answered this question two weeks ago. So this is recap of recap. But what agreement did God make with Adam and his posterity? So this question is meant so that you can bring to mind what we've talked about in paragraph one and two. No, nobody can remember. Okay, question two. Is the agreement that God made with Adam still binding upon men? That one should be easy. Okay, someone said yes. Well, um, so next week we'll look at question three and four. So question one basically tries to summarize what we talked about in paragraph one. And that was when we talked about natural law and positive law. And then in paragraph two, um, the confession tries to explain that it, it's not only Adam that had the natural law, but every of Adam's posterity, that is every other human that has been born since Adam, that's Adam and Eve. Um, that they have this natural law written upon their hearts. Now, of course, um, man is falling, so there is a bit of a problem with how the law is written upon man's heart, which is why we concluded two weeks ago that we think or we can deduce that it was necessary for God to come to Mount Sinai and then write it out, although, you know, as if it's new, but it isn't. So God wrote it out in the form of the Ten Commandments that was given on Mount Sinai. Do you guys understand up to that point? Because otherwise, the Ten Commandments is perfectly written on the, on, in, on the heart of every man. It's called the natural law. Every man has it. And then we proved uh, two weeks ago, we looked from, I think, Genesis 4 till the end of Genesis to see if these Ten Commandments were functioning already before Mount Sinai. And then by studying Genesis, we realize that people have been obeying the Ten Commandments way before Mount Sinai. And people have been punished for not obeying the Ten Commandments way before Mount Sinai. And if God is going to be a just God, it must mean that it is because it is on the heart of man. Otherwise, then you can accuse God of being unjust. And then we also said that there is a way that you can explain the doctrine of, the, of man in being in the image of God uh, you know, as being the reason why we can say for sure and for certainty that the natural law is written on the heart of every man. Okay, so that's like a summary 
of what we've looked at in paragraph one and two. So paragraph three, um, so let me read three, four, and five. We want to attempt to look at three, four, and five today. So I'll read three, four, and five. You can look into your manuals. Actually, today will be Bible study proper. That is, we'll be looking a lot at the Bible. That is, most of the time, our heads will just be in our Bibles because we want to try and prove something from the Bible today. So let me read three, four, and five to all of us. In addition to, so I'm using the easy, no, it's not easy, um, a modernized version so that, so that I don't have to read it twice. In addition to this law, usually called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typological ordinances. In some ways, these concerned worship by prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. In other ways, they revealed various instructions about moral duties. Since all of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by Jesus Christ. As the true Messiah and the only lawgiver, he was empowered by the Father to do this. Paragraph 4. To Israel, he also gave various judicial laws, which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. Paragraph 5. The moral law forever requires obedience of everyone both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. Okay, so... Paragraph three starts with this, with this, it starts in a very interesting way. He says, in addition to this law, and this easy to read, this modern version just puts that hyphen and tells you which law he's talking about. Because in paragraph two, we already said that, in paragraph one, we already established that man has a natural law written upon his heart, established. Paragraph two, God on Mount Sinai now writes out that law, again, so that we are very clear. It is not a new law that is on Mount Sinai. It's just the natural law upon his heart, God writes it out on, it, on, on stones. So it's now, it's now, I mean, you know that phrase to add something on stone, you know, because you want it to be there. You know, uh, when you were in secondary school, um, we do secondary school outreach, so sometimes when I'm there, I look, at, I look on top the, the, you know, the walls and I'll see people writing, I don't know, like, GD was here, or something was here. So, you, I don't know how many of you did that. I mean, that's sinful, by the way, because you are defacing the property, just so that we are clear. So you shouldn't do that. But it is, it is in that sense. So, of course, you know that 
you are here, right? So you write it out so that everybody knows what's upon your heart that he was here, that sort of thing. So it's the same thing, if I can use that analogy. So God writes it out on Mount Sinai. It was the same law that was on the heart of man. So that's why we came um, with that sentence that said that the natural law and the moral law in the content are the same thing. In the content, they are the same thing. Okay. So, paragraph three now starts by saying, so in addition to that law, that is now, we now call it the moral law, or you can call it the Ten Commandments, or you can call it the Decalogue. They all mean the same thing. Or, or some people just call it ten words. So they said, in addition to this particular law, we usually call it the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel. Did you notice they now specifically said people of Israel? In paragraph one and two, they were basically addressing every other person. They said, this natural law is upon everybody's heart. This moral law is for everybody. But that this particular law they are about to talk about is for Israel. But if you also notice, they've done something now. Because we, we know it as the law of God. But now, the framers of the confession, they've used two words now. They've introduced one word called moral law, and they are introducing this other one called ceremonial law. And in the way they said it, they said, in addition, almost like saying that there is the moral law, and in addition to it, there is the ceremonial law. But growing up, that, that wasn't how we were taught. We're, they, they, they just taught us that there's just one thing. There's the law of God. And um, if you remember, if you've ever you know, had any dealings with charismatic theology or that sort of theology, they even told us, they quoted places like Romans 6.14. There's one in particular that I liked. Uh, I think it's Romans 7. You can open there. So... Romans 6.14, so they just quote that part, for sin shall not be master over you, but I, in fact, it was many years later that I realized that that was part of the verse. All I thought the verse was saying is, you are not under the law, but under grace. I did not even know that there was something before that one in that verse. So we're taught some things like that. We're also um, given seven, seven, um, 7.6 says, but now we have been released from the law. So we've heard these things and it's not new, by the way. This is 1689. That is, this was framed in 1689. So it's been a long time that people have cherry-picked verses like this, of course, out of context, to tell people that they are not under any sort of law. And what that produced in people, of course, you can imagine, was sins of different kinds. So, the framers of the law are now, they were, they, were, they were made to ask a question that, are you saying that the law is an indivisible whole? You know, that is, it can be divided. You have to see it as one. So that when you read these kinds of verses, you can just say that, it's gone. You remember that um, thing I read to you the first time, how someone was saying that there is no, there is no such thing as law. 
you know, now we're under law of Christ. And I don't know what the law of Christ is to then do, but you have to ask the question that, so are you, I mean, if the law cannot be divided, then this statement means truly that the law has been done away with. We are not under the law. Did you get? But if the law can be divided, I'm still using a broad term. If the law can be divided, then it is now on you to ask yourself that when Paul says you are not under the law, which law is he talking about? Do you understand? So the framers of the confession, of course, and we've said this before, they have their theology, and this is the summary. So they did not add the theology into this summary when they wrote it out. So you need to find out what is the theology that has driven them to the point where they are making conclusions like this, that there is such a division in the law that one can be called moral, the other can be called ceremonial, and then the last one, which is in paragraph uh, four, can be called judicial or civil. Where did they find that from? Or is it just, you know, like you people call it gymnastics? Is it that they're like, ah, these, anti, uh, these Socinians, antinomians, let's see how we can beat them. Let's just, let's come up with something. Was that what they did? And so when they came back to the, uh, to the table, they were like, see, division of the law. So therefore, it, was that what they did? Or is it that if you properly look at the scriptures, you also can find that the scriptures in talking about the law of God divides it into these three parts. So, in case you are looking for uh, a way to memorize this, it's called the threefold division of the law. It is, that, it is that belief, that theology, that teaching, that doctrine that drove them to write chapter, uh, paragraph two, three, and four. Are you with me to this point? Sorry, three, four, and five, actually. Thank you. That is, uh, three talks about the ceremonial, four talks about the judicial, and five talks about the moral. Okay, now, usually when people hear things like this, their first objection is, show me in the Bible where they wrote it like this, that there are three, there's three-fold division of the law. That's usually people's first objection. Now, as I've said that, I'm sure that you can, you can throw that objection out because if you do that, you do that same thing to doctrine of the Trinity. Because then I can also tell you that there is not such a verse that writes out Trinity. And then we're back at the table again. And there are many other doctrines like that, that you have to look at the entire story of the Bible and see that the Bible teaches this thing. Otherwise, then you can throw it out. But if it teaches it, then you are bound to believe that the Bible teaches this. Do you understand? So don't yet throw, you know, don't feel uneasy when we just bring in a new word and say threefold division of the law. Let us look through the Bible together tonight and see if we can prove that there truly is a threefold division of the law. Now, I want us to start from Exodus, actually. So, if you don't have a Bible, please ask them, ask them for a Bible because for the next 10 or so minutes, our heads will just be in 
the Bible. Look at chapter 19. Now, sorry, let me just say this before we, before we look down. Notice that we've already said that the natural law was already written upon the hearts of man. Where? In what, in what verse of the Bible can you locate that? In, okay, let me now read down. In what, in, in what chapter of Genesis... If I say that the natural law was written upon the heart of man, where did it happen? In what chapter of Genesis did it happen? Genesis 1. Good. Genesis 1. What verse of Genesis 1? Now read down. Genesis 1. Good. When God made man, Genesis 1, 26. Good. Now, and we've also established that when you look at the Ten Commandments, when you look at the content of the Ten Commandments, it is the same thing as the content of the natural law. We've also proven that two weeks ago. So already, logically, the natural law, which is the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, has been existing for a very long time. So when we get to Exodus, the first thing that, should, that you should be thinking about is wait. So it wasn't until Exodus that we started to have some additional law. So that should already get you thinking that then there's something about this law that I'm not looking at carefully. Are you, are you getting what I'm saying? That is the first proof is that historically, the natural law did not have a development. It was at the beginning of when man was created. Genesis 1.26, there was already natural law. Every other law had to be developed over time, including these other ones that we call ceremonial and judicial. Are you guys following? Okay, so now, let's look at Exodus 19. Look at verse 10. So I'll just read a couple of verses. Um, the Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 16. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. So all the people who, who were in the camp trembled. Then, in verse 18, now Mount Sinai was all up in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. Are you guys still with me? And then verse 19, then the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and then if you just skip down to 20 verse 1, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then the first commandment, you shall have no other God before me. Can you see what's happening here? I mean, so God wants to give the Ten Commandments. And first off, they have to go and purify themselves for three days. Because God wants to come and give them the Ten Commandments. And so when God finally appeared on the third day, 
seal of the drama that accompanies the speaking of 10 words. It's not 10 words in a literal way, but the Bible calls it 10 words. So let's just use that word, 10 words. Seal of the drama, there was smoke, there was quaking, there was fire, there was thunder, there was lightning, and then he started to speak. And see what happens in verse 17. When he was, so verse 17 is um, uh, law number 10. After that, verse 18 tells you what? All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Now, in case you've not noticed what is happening here, Moses is not just pausing the narrative. It is that God has actually stopped speaking at this point. To prove it, see what happens in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, so you see that the audience changed. When God came down on the mountain, he told Moses, tell everybody to come outside to the foot of the mountain. I want to address them. And he addressed them, speaking the Ten Commandments directly to them. When it was done, he turned to Moses in verse 22. That is, he stopped speaking to them, turns to Moses in verse 22, and then he tells Moses some more things. So you can read it by yourself. He says, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from the heaven. So you see, so God is saying that, tell them that they just saw that I spoke to them. Because he was done talking. And if you notice, in verse 21, Moses continues by saying, Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. So Moses start, continues his narrative and says that, So God is now telling him that, Now, this next thing I'm about to say to you, their ordinances set it before them. Now, you're a good student of the Bible. Something is happening. He comes down, speaks 10 words, Decalogue, and then stops talking to them, then goes back to Moses, and then tells Moses, okay, write these other ones down, and then go and tell them. Now, don't, don't, let's, let's not be hasty in the conclusion. So follow. If you look at 21, 21 down to 23 just has something that I will call civil law. I mean, it has stuff about the land, has stuff about property rights, personal injury, and lawyers will call that something that's basically civil. So he goes on and tells Moses just civil laws. He says, write this down, then you go back and then you go and tell them. Now, at the end of chapter 23, the next thing is 24.1, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 of the elders. So you see that he stops again. He, so in 21, so in 20, he says 10 words, stops. The audience was different. He was speaking to everybody. He stops speaking to them, goes to Moses, gives him something that you can refer to as some bunch of civil laws. We've established that the, the Decalogue is, is a moral law. So then he starts giving him some civil laws. Then he pauses. The next thing that happens is that they make a covenant. But if you notice in 24, verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, before you think that that includes the Ten Commandments, don't forget 
God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on the stone. So whatever Moses is writing here does not include the Ten Commandments. Are you following me to this point? So whatever he's writing here is what God just gave him between 21 and 23. Have I lost anybody? No. Okay. So Moses writes these things down, and then that is the book in verse 7 that Moses refers to as the book of the covenant. And it is on this book that they make a covenant with the people of Israel and then with God. Now, let me not make my commentary yet. Then, verse 20, chapter 25, after all of this ceremony, chapter 25, then the Lord spoke to Moses again. Are you see what's happening? Then, there's a new round of, let me use it loosely, new rounds of talk. Then God comes again, and then this time around, what God is about to tell him has to do with something that will have to do with the ark, with the tabernacle, and you can just call it something about worship. And, or you could call it something ceremonial. So whatever it is, in Moses telling the story, Moses already, in the way the story was unfolding, could see that all of these things happened in separate events. When God was going to give the, the Decalogue, it was a separate event from when he was going to give what we have called the civil and when he was going to give what we call the ceremonial. And that already, if it's not clear, shows you that there seems to be some kind of division already, even the way the story is being told. Now, another thing you would notice in the story is that the way that the Decalogue was given sort of elevates it to be above the other ones. Because why is God so particular about this one that he makes sure that he appears with all of those drama and after he says those words to them, he wrote it down. Do you know how many times God wrote it? Twice. And he wrote it on stone. I mean, there. It's there. And it is these ten words. And if you remember, when Moses was bringing it down the second time, they had already prepared the ark. Now, you guys know what the ark is. That is what, what the ark signifies as a type. Now, the ark was so special that it was put where? Holy of Holies. Good. And the Holy of Holies was what? Shielded away from the holy. And then the holy was shielded away from the, you know, the outer court. Are you seeing? You know, so there's the outer court where everybody could go. And then there is the inner court where it was just a holy place where, you know, the priest could go. And then there was the inside, inside where the high priest would go once. And then there is, and now there are some things there. There is the, there is um, Aaron's board. But there's something special inside the ark. And God said, put these ten words inside the ark. And cover it up with the messy seat, and then the cherubs will look down on it. If you, as you read that story, if if you're not reading too fast, you start to notice that it feels like, I mean, it feels like God is treating it specially. I mean, you know how in some houses, not not anybody here, you know, but you know, like people outside, you, you can tell when a child is special, because there's also a way they treat the child, you know. One child is going to one of the best schools, 
and then the other ones are just going to the school just behind the house. You see the point? You know, one gets all of the, you know, nice school gifts, gets talked about. If there's PTA meeting, that's the one they will attend. But these other ones, nah, it's all right. And you can begin to tell that, I, 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 think, there, I think there's a way in which, uh, let's use the word loosely, like you are favoring this above these other ones. And so, it begins to tell you a story that whatever the framers of the confession are looking at, they're looking at it from the Bible. It is the way the story unfolds that gives them an idea that, wait, it seems like the, I mean, even if they couldn't tell, they knew that the Decalogue was special. I mean, as at this point, you already know that the Decalogue is special because it is the only one that is in, was written on stone. And you know, and you know what that's supposed to signify. So it is written, etched on stone forever. This is my words. This is it. This is this is it. And God did it twice. You know, because you think that God would have been upset with Moses for, for the first time that he broke, and God does be like, okay, you know what, you know, go and write the other one. It's not like I like it again. Anyway, you can upset me. No, 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 but God took his time again, wrote it the second time. And so already it means that these ten words in the story in the Old Testament have a special place. Now, the question is, is that the only kind of division that we can make? Which is fair. See, if, if you don't do the three-fold division and you do a two-fold division, I will still, it will still be fine. I mean, not really, but at least it is clear to you now that there's something about the Decalogue apart from the other ones. So let's even imagine that the other ones, you can't see the division. But whatever it is, the other ones are different from the Decalogue. And that's the first thing that they want you to notice, that there's something that is different. But that's not all. There is a way that Moses talks about this thing. So now let's go to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is Moses' end of life, and so he wants to tell you, he wants to do like a recap of what has happened. So look at verse 22 of, of Deuteronomy 5. It says, these words, that is, these words are the words that, excuse me, that Moses speaks from verses 1. So verses 1 to verse 21, Moses just recites the Ten Commandments all over again. Are you following now? So Moses now says, these words, now this is Moses' commentary. In case you missed the commentary in Exodus, Moses provides you a commentary of Exodus now. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom with a great voice, and he added no more. Did you notice? I said, that was it. God stopped talking. That is, in case you missed that when you were reading, go back there and realize that that's what happened. He spoke. After he was done with the ten words, he stopped speaking to you. And look what he said. He wrote them, in case you did not, because again, you can say, how are you sure that when Moses was writing those other ones, he didn't include the Ten Commandments? Moses says this here in his commentary that he wrote them on two tablets of stones and gave them to me. Now, that, this is Moses' commentary. Now, see what Moses does in verse 31. But as for you, so it goes on, you can read it when you get home. So this is God talking to him. But as for you, stand here by me, that I may speak to you all the commandments 
and the statutes and the judgments which you shall speak to them, that they may observe them in the land which I will choose, so which I will give to them to possess. Now, here's the thing. In English, you would think that commandments, statutes, judgments are the same thing. Probably, yes. So then why the repetition? Why does Moses say that God said it to him that, so I'll give you commandments, I'll give you statutes, I'll give you judgment, then you go and teach them. What is he doing, you know, with those three words? Now, of course, we already know that the commandments seem to be what he just told them now, in the ten words. That's why we call it ten commandments. So, is it that he's now saying that that commandment is also a statute and it's also the judgment you teach them, but we already read in, the, in Exodus that when God was done giving the commandment, he spoke some ordinances to Moses. And then, based on what he spoke, they made a covenant and then he continued to tell them something about worship. So you see that Moses is giving a commentary and Moses himself, when he looks at that story, says that what God did was he gave you something that was in in three batches. And Moses didn't want to say, law, law, law. So he says, commandments, statutes, and judgments. Now, but Moses repeats it in 6.1. Deuteronomy 6.1. I said today is basically looking at the Bible. So that you two can see how you can come to this kind of conclusion. 6.1. Now, this is the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments. So is, is, is Moses wasting ink? <laughs> if it's the same thing, why? What is the problem? In fact, it goes, and then you, you, you find it in many places. Look at it in 711. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I'm commanding you today. So, I don't think it is a coincidence in the way the story unfolds. I think that. Moses realized what was happening. God gives him 10 commandments and stops talking, gives him some other kinds of law, and it is on that law that they make a covenant. And we call it civil. And it makes sense because that is sort of like the constitution. So when he brings about the constitution, now they can become, he can become their king and they can become what? A nation to him. When he was giving them the Ten Commandments, he was basically being a lawgiver, a God, and then they were men to him. Then he moves on, gives them a civil law, and then they make a covenant on that, like a constitution, and say, so therefore, going forward from now, this is us, this is our nation, under God, theocracy, boom. And then, when they were done, they moved on now to talk about how to worship the God that is both a lawgiver and then a king to them. Are you following the story? So it is, if you are going to blame anybody, it is Moses you will blame. Because it's Moses that started this whole three ways of telling the story. And I don't think it's three ways of telling the same story. It unfolded, I mean, you're you reading it. It unfolds in front of you, and there are events that set it apart. Otherwise, you just think he's going round and round telling the same story, but it isn't. 
And when he gets to Deuteronomy, he talks about it in such a way that you would notice that there's something, at least in, in Moses' mind, that is threefold. Now, you also notice something, because the question is, you know what, I think it's just Moses. But don't be quick to think it's Moses. Let us see if other people, by reading, by reading Exodus and Deuteronomy, if they came to the same conclusion. Look at what happens in Osea. However you pronounce it, I, I don't know, Osea, six. If you say O.C., however you pronounce it, open to the one that you are pronouncing, chapter 6, look at verse 6. Now this is God talking. He says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. Now, in fact, he goes on and says, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. So God is talking. It would be strange if there isn't a division, but yet God is introducing a division. And the kind of division that one is above the other. Are you, are you seeing what he's doing? Because he's saying to them now that, you know what? I would rather that you are obeying me than that you are sacrificing. So, God, God knows how he told Moses the story. And he repeats it in Osea, and he repeats it way before Osea in Samuel. Now, you guys know this story, but let's just look at it together. First Samuel 15, 22 and 23. You know the story. Samuel tells Saul, has God as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What is Samuel saying here? See, it has always been clear to everybody, apart from some of you, that there is a threefold division in the law. And that the Decalogue has always had a special place in the law of God over and above the civil law and the ceremonial law. Now, look at Jesus. Let us see if Jesus also thought the same thing. Mark 10. Mark 10, 19, you know the story. This rich man runs to Jesus. And then he calls him good. And he asks Jesus a question, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, look at me, guys. If the law is one, the way to inherit eternal life will be everything without exception. But what does Jesus tell him? Jesus says so many words and everything was from the Decalogue. I mean... The guy is not running away. So Jesus has all the time. And Jesus having all of the time, yet Jesus just points him to the Ten Commandments. That is, do this and you will live. So Jesus is implying here that the Decalogue has always, and of course it makes sense because the natural law was always in existence way before all of this conversation in Exodus. And so if anything, the Decalogue will always have preeminence over the other laws in the law of God. Now, Jesus does this again in chapter 12, so just flip one page, I don't know what kind of Bible you're using. 
verse 28. <laughs> no, I mean the size. So I don't know if you are flipping one page, just flipping two pages. <laughs> verse 28. Now you know this as well. You know this story. So one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well. So what does he ask Jesus? What commandment is foremost of all? Do you think that he was asking him what, which of the Ten Commandments is foremost of all? Is that how you read it? That's how most of you read it. That's not the question. The entire law of God, which one is the foremost? And Jesus has all the time in the world, and then he says two things, and both of them were a summary of the Decalogue. He doesn't mention sacrifice. He doesn't mention anything civil. He goes straight to the Decalogue. And notice... Something interesting happens after. The scribe now, I guess, I guess he was so happy. He expands Jesus' words and see what Jesus tells him in 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. People that will recognize that the Decalogue has a separate place in the law of God than not far from the kingdom of God. So this division is not, wasn't manufactured. It was, it was right there in the law itself. So it means that the next time you are reading a portion of the Bible and you see law, don't be quick to say, aha, everything, including thou shalt, uh, you know, there's one that you guys like to throw away. Uh, where's that one? The Sabbath day. You quickly throw that one inside and say, everything is done away with. Don't be quick to do that. You have to ask the question that, okay, which one is he talking about here? Because when you begin to look at the Bible story, you realize that either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, they used the law of God, let me use the word loosely. Sometimes they're referring to the entire Bible. Psalm 19, we just sang about it now. Psalm 119, the law of the Lord. And they're talking about the Bible. And sometimes when they say love the Lord, they're basically just talking about the entire five books of Moses. And sometimes what they're doing is that they are referring to it as the covenant of works. Or at least the covenant of Moses. Or sometimes all they're just referring to is the ceremonial and civil law. Which, let me just give you a hint now. Is how Moses uses it, sorry, how Paul uses it most of the time. And sometimes what they are referring to as law of God is the moral law. You need to read properly to come to your conclusion. Don't listen to these people that do not have the spirit of God and they just want to ruin your life so that you can sin, so that they can give you some sort of license to sin. Because at the end of the day, this is how to read the law of the Lord. So there is truly a threefold division in the law. And it is not manufactured. It was, it's, it's been in the story all along. Samuel saw it. Seah saw it. Um, uh, even Micah saw it. Uh, Jesus, Paul, everybody, they've always seen this division, and they've always noticed that the Decalogue has a special place because, as you would see in paragraph 5, it is eternal, 
it requires obedience for everyone, both those that are justified and those that are not justified. It doesn't matter. The, the Decalogue binds everybody to his obedience. So, what can we say in conclusion? Well, I want you to be like Paul. Paul in Romans 7, verse 22, says something very interesting. And I want us to close on note. He says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Now, of course, Paul here is referring to the Ten Commandments. Again, that's why I told you that when you see law of the Lord or law of God, you need to find out what exactly that they are talking about. So I want you to be like Paul. I want you to see that the Decalogue has a special place in the law of the Lord. Now, the confession tells us that the civil law and the ceremonial law have been fulfilled and then have been done away with. But they tell us in, chapter, in paragraph 5 that but for this one that we call the moral law, the Decalogue, that even if not for its content, that is the fact that it is a moral law, then because God has authority as creator, he gives it, and as long as you are a creature, you are bound to it. But as Christians, we are not bound to it in the sense of looking for salvation, in the sense of justification. We are bound to it, rather, in the way that Israel saw it. How did Israel see it? Israel was justified. I want to use that word loosely. Okay, you know what? Let me use the right word. They were delivered from bondage without the law because their deliverance is free grace. And then God brings them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm with all of these signs and brings them to the mountain and then he gives them a law in which they will now become his special people. And that is the same with the Christian and God and the law. It is God favoring you so that you'll be a special person, or so that we'll be a special people. That's why he leaves the law with us. And the interesting thing is like, unlike the Decalogue, it is now written again on our hearts. So that you will love the Lord your God with the whole of your heart, strength, soul, and mind. So that you can know when you are offending him and you can flee back to him for forgiveness. So that you can have deep communion with him. This is, and even in the Old Testament, that was the purpose of the Decalogue. It was never meant for people to be afraid of and to flee away from. It has always been given to people that have been delivered and saved by free grace. And it's the same with you and I today. And so I want you to restore God's law in his rightful place in your own heart as well. I want you to go from here and be a law keeper, a law lover. Read it. I mean, some of you have not even memorized the Ten Commandments. 
the Ten Commandments of your God, the one that through Jesus Christ you've been adopted into his family. You don't, even, you don't even know the laws in his house. So if anything, live here today making that quiet vow in your heart that I am going to memorize the Ten Commandments. And God helping me by his Holy Spirit, I will keep the law. I will love the Lord with the whole of my strength and mind. I would always flee to him for forgiveness and that by God's help, my relationship with him would deepen. Amen. Any question or comments? Thank you, Brother Melari, for that's quite helpful. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. Just a bit of clarification. Paragraph four uses the phrase the nation of Israel being ended. Is it the framer of 1689, that would be 17th century? <laughs> Is it because the nation state of Israel were, not lo were no longer in existence at that time that informs them writing that the nation being ended? Because the question would be, after 1948, where you now have the current day Jewish state, are they the Jewish state today, is it legitimate? I'm saying it because there are some Christians that believe that the Jewish state today is not legitimate. In fact, this Hamas war, some commentators are even saying that all those guys you see they call Israel are just, are just fake. That actual, and and there's, there's element of truth to it. If, if you and I call ourselves Nigerian Jew, Nigerian Jews now. They'll come and pick us. And then the Ukrainian Jew, Sudan Jew, Somalian Jews, and all that stuff. And I mean, there's this Zionist idea, but that's not where I'm going. Is it the history of that time that was playing prank on them? Or do they really mean theologically that the nation of Israel has been ended? That's my first question. I mean, if you don't have time, you can push them to next week. I'll be fine. The second question is, I'm looking at Romans 5.13. When Paul says, because you have established now that the law was there as far back as Genesis chapter 1, and when Paul now said, the sin was in the world before the law was given. What is he talking about? These are my two questions. So I, I have two questions as well. And uh, the first is, uh, I think, is, is, this, is the, I would say, easier one, because you said regarding the natural law now that it's in, in content it's similar to the moral law, right? And it's written in our hearts. So every single human being on earth has 
the natural law written in jihad. So my question is, what then is the significance of that law being written in our hearts if the Bible then speaks of this new covenant, um, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we see God talking about um, writing this law on their heart. What law is he speaking about there? And what would then be the significance of it being written in our heart if already we all have the law written in our heart? Then uh, the second question is, we, 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 I don't know if you've gotten there, but reading through the paragraphs you read through, we can uh, conclude that there is somehow a fulfillment of the other laws that, that, that brings them to an end. That's um, the ceremonial law and the uh, civil law. Yeah, but the moral law is still standing. And st when you began this um, teaching, you mentioned that th the law reveals the very nature of God, right? And if God is unchanging, it means the law itself is unchanging. So we cannot expect that the law should at any point be abolished or should cease or something like that. Yet, we see that um, there's a form of tempering with the Sabbath law. All right. So if it's unchanging, how then was the Sabbath moved from Saturday to Sunday? Because there is no explicit statement in scripture that okay see this is why this should be right and if the law is unchanging how did it change so, so uh, just to before i say what i would say i agree with your general position but i disagree with your grounding of it so you said in passing you said some of us are thrown away the sabbath but another one was paul that, that did it. So Colossians 2, and when Paul says in Colossians 2, and he says um, that let no one judge you, that's verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So, so my, own, my own, because the grounding, so you're, I agree with you that Borala is in a different category, but I'm sure you know this, that many people would ground it because all the other nine commandments are recommanded for us in the New Testament. So in that sense, we don't need to go back to Exodus 20 because we, in the New Covenant, the other nine moral laws are already grounded for us. <laughs> no, so I still, I still believe mm -hmm. in the principle behind the Sabbath, okay. but not in the literal, because that would take care of what he's yeah. saying, yeah. because then I can show him all the mm. other nine, and I can show him the principle okay. behind the Sabbath, when Jesus Christ teaches okay. the principles behind the Sabbath, mm. not the literal Sabbath. Mm. Right. Okay, um, so first off, let me apologize for spending all of the time, because you know, I, I figured that it was straightforward, so I decided to use my time to seven, otherwise now I'll have a lot of time. So let me uh, there are four questions. Let me. Yes. Yeah, so I, I will. I will. And then. I'm, okay. So. Okay. Okay. All right. So I. I, I want to attempt to pray at seven fifteen. So let me start from the last one. 
um, the question of the Sabbath. So if we can look at Colossians 2 and explain it in such a way that it doesn't tamper with with the Sabbath, then I, I suppose that we have our, I mean, it, it means that we, we have one length standing, as it were. So here's the thing, there are, there are three ways that people have, that I know that people interpret this text, so that I'm sincere. Um, there are those that come and say that this text is dealing with the Sabbath as it exists in the Ten Commandments. And so therefore, Paul starts that Paul is the one that starts to now put a two-fold division in the Decalogue, if you, if you can call it that. Some people come and say that, well, if you know the history behind Colossians, then you would understand why Paul talks about this, because you know, there's like this history of why, because there's always a reason why someone picks a, 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 a pen and paper and starts writing something to you. And uh, so there was something that, was, that had come to Paul at that time about the issues that, were, that they were facing back in Colossae. And part of those issues were from some kinds of group of people that had come and then they wanted to bring back all sorts of things. And so Paul had to write and then expand to the people in, in, in Colossae. That's, in fact, look at, look at how Paul starts to expand this thing in verse um, uh, from 9. You see how he makes his arguments, because you know, Paul is building the argument. Then he gets to verse 13. Um, then he moves to verse 14 and says, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us. Now, don't be quick to think you know what that, that phrase is. Just wait for Paul. If Paul doesn't explain the phrase or doesn't give you an indication how to interpret the phrase, then you can now go to another text. Otherwise, most of the time, the way that they will use it and, the way, and because it's a letter, you will end, end up explaining it. So when Paul says he canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees, decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's talking about Jesus. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as a judge in regard to food or drink and in respect to festival and new moon. And so they say that some people just came up, and I think you would, I think you know them. They were the same set of people that made him travel back to Jerusalem in, in Acts, you know, because they, they, they kept following around and say, see, yes, we are saved by grace, so, but there are still some things that, that we need to bring over. You know, so, so in the beginning, it was just circumcision. Over time, from circumcision, it became, you know, all of the festivals that Israel kept. You know, there was, and then there, there were, you know, like these three annual feasts that they're supposed to keep. And, you know, there were just so many things. And so they just kept bringing more things and more things, you know. So immediately you yield the ground for circumcision. They'd be like, aha, good. By the way, yes, that was just debate, though. It's not only circumcision you have to keep now. See all of these other things that we were doing back then. So that seemed to have been the background. Not actually same. That, well, it's history. So you can read it yourself. So it's, it, it was the background. And if you notice... There is a way that Paul uses the word Sabbath 
Most translations have, will have it as a Sabbath. Some translations have it as Sabbaths. And so that brings up one important question. I actually like the word Sabbath. I, I just wonder, what does it mean by Sabbath? Because traditionally, you know of one, the seventh day. But then when you go back to Exodus, read through Leviticus, Numbers, you notice that there were other days, like for instance, Day of Atonement was a Sabbath. And then there were just many Sabbaths. They were, they were, in fact, the land had a Sabbath. In fact, how many times? Seven, every seventh year, then in the 49th year and 50. So there were many Sabbaths, and they were bringing all of these things. And so Paul tells them, and here's the thing that gives you an indication as to what exactly he's talking about here that was nailed away. So you see, when I, that's why I told you that when you see law, you don't merely think it's the entire law. You have to now ask, what is he talking about? Because Paul now expands what he said was nailed away. And he, again, he has many space to write. Instead, he, he just mentions food, drink, festivals. And keeps, again, well, it's not gymnast, and just keeps the moral law out of it. Strictly focusing on the civil and the ceremonial. And says, don't let anybody now try to drag you back. Now, there's something he said to people in Ephesians chapter 2. And I think it's similar, really. Um, look at chapter 2. You know the verse very well. Let's read from, say, 14. For he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, again, don't be quick to put inside your answer. Wait, what is this? It says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandment. Now, there's a, you can even say, ah, uh -uh, law of commandment, ten commandments. Pause. It says, contained in what? Ordinances. So Paul inserts the exact one that he's talking about. It, it, it goes right for it. Because he knows that there are, there's a threefold in the law. So he goes right for the one. that, And this is important. Because what Paul is going to talk about later on is the church. Right? Because the way the ordinance worked, that's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was God being the Lord of the church of the Old Testament. Jews only, special people. So Paul comes and says, no, when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he fulfills that particular one so that God is, would no longer just be Lord of the church of the Old Testament, but just blows it open, brings in Gentiles, brings in Jews, and then makes them into one new man. And so, Paul was specifically talking about the law that kept the Gentiles out of worship of God in the Old Testament. And I think that this is, this is the same thing he goes on to do in Colossians. When he gets there as well, hearing the stories, I was like, wait, they're doing that? Well, they, are, they need to know that when Jesus also came and then he was nailing all these things to the cross, he, he, there was a way he specifically fulfilled two particular parts of the law, the civil and the ceremonial. Now, because you have to remember that Jesus actually said 
in Matthew 5 that he did not come to abolish the law. Again, the question would be what law? <laughs> right? Because I've, I've told you now that when you see law, you have to ask what law. The question will be answered if you look at the remaining part of Matthew 5. What does Jesus talk about in the remaining part of Matthew 5? The Decalogue. You know, said, they've said to you, you know, um, you can hate people, you know, but I'm saying to you now, right? He, so when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish, he tells you what he did not abolish by now explaining the Ten Commandments. And not just explaining, he cuts away the, excess, the excesses of the Pharisees. And in fact, if you want to use it loosely, he now adds more to it. Before, it was just don't murder. All of a sudden now, I can't hate. I can't call someone a fool. Like, it's just, that is, he's telling you that, no, 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 you've always missed it. And so he, so when he says I, that, in fact, if you remember in that particular portion, he says anybody that teaches, or that, uh, that doesn't, sorry, let me just look at it. Matthew 5, then I'll stop. Matthew 5. Maybe we should, maybe we should look at Matthew 5 next week properly. Matthew 5 says, verse 19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, which of course would include the Sabbath law. But maybe we'll do that next week. And teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It was serious for, for Jesus. Because of course he's God. <laughs> it, it, is, it is his own moral law. It is, it is, it is the perfect reflection of his own character. So, of course, you have to tell them, if, if you try it and then you teach others to do it, you'll be called least. And then he goes on to tell them, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven because it is the scribes that do that sort of thing to the moral law of God. And then, of course, the next thing he does is he expands the decalogue for them. Okay, so we need to pray, <laughs> and then next week we'll try and start from where we stopped. Yes, please. We have been saved to keep the law of God. How many of you want to disagree with that? That now that I am saved, I no longer need to keep any law except loving people. How many of you want, how many of you stand on that strand so we can, we can stay it tomorrow morning? It is not by keeping the law that we became saved. We were saved freely by grace, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And having brought us out of Egypt, he gave us his law. So we can obey him. So we are law keepers. We are law lovers. That is your takeaway tonight. If you struggle with the law of God, see, ah, this church in our heart, we know smoke, we know carry woman. We no drink. Ah. You, are, you are in trouble. You are not saved. <laughs> you have issue. 
So be careful and just trust God that the Lord will grant you grace to love his law. And on Sunday, we learned that the commandment, the commandment of God are not what? They are not what? They are not burdensome. If they are burdensome, something else is responsible for it and not God and his law. And of course, the many question as to Jeremiah will get that. Uh, and that's crazy, baby. They answered now. Which, yes, yes, we'll get back to your question next week. Yeah. Uh, but we have, you know, the old heart is taken away. You know, the law, everything I need has been corrupted. No, the new heart needs to be That is, that is They will remove that one, that one that Adam gave you with, uh, there's a way your sin actually put some web on it and uh, it could not be recovered. So it was a complete uh, reprogramming. I said the program thing. The new covenant is not like brand new, is it? The new covenant is it like brand new that is nothing, nothing. No, it's not. It's not, it's not brand new. So, what a, a joy to come before the Lord to learn about His law. May we be this church, our life be seen as those who comply with the law of God. If we, if you are not breaking the law of God in the name of Jesus because He died for us, how does that look like? It's a shame. Heavenly Father, bless us tonight with the measure of the Holy Spirit that may go away loving you, loving your laws, and therefore, therefore confirming our election and calling. Forgive us our many sins and help us to take your word seriously and apply them to our lives for blessing and for your glory. Bless us now as we go home with journey mercies and bless our dinner and bless the rest of our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good night.